Uh, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Uh, Luke chapter 4. While you're turning there, let me uh, say just a couple of things. First of all, um, let me encourage you, don't, after we finish reading the passage, don't close your Bible and put it away. You're going to need it. Um, so you just keep it handy, keep it open. Uh, you're going you're gonna to turn a few pages here and there. Um, so, so don't put away your Bibles. And then second, just sort of um, explanation for those of you visiting with us, kind of where we are in the process, um, in our, at least in our sermon series. We, uh, it's our normal practice to preach through books of the Bible. Um, we've preached through Luke and Genesis and Jonah and James and Philippians and some others probably that I'm forgetting. Uh, most of those are available on the website, so if you're just dying, you can you can dig around on gracecovenantathens.org, and there's a sermons tab. You can listen to your heart's content to whatever's there. Um, we currently are in week, I think, five, I think, um, preaching through a series where you've, you've heard we're, we're in the process of nominating first elders, first deacons for uh, Grace Covenant Church, and so we've We've looked at what an, an elder is, what an elder does, the office of deacon. Last week we looked at John 10 and, and Christ as the good shepherd, the model elder. Uh, today uh, we're looking at Jesus as the model deacon. And then uh, the next two weeks, still in this same sort of series. And then after that, we'll be back into uh, a book. Um, so that's kind of where we are uh, at this point, and that's sort of for the benefit of, of, well, even the members kind of wondering how much longer is this going to go on. Um, I know who you are. Uh, Luke chapter 14, I mean Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. So if you are able, would you please stand together now? Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Ah, the days of preaching sitting down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in this, your word, in our hearts. That we would hear it, that we would understand it, that you would use it to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. So there was a, a time, and I don't know that it's um, all that popular a, a phrase anymore, uh, but there was a time when performing random acts of kindness was kind of a big deal. The, the bumper sticker would, you know, you could see the bumper sticker on the car. 
the instruction to everybody was perform random acts of kindness. Maybe it came out of that pay it forward movie from back in the day. You know, there's actually a um, there's actually a nonprofit organization, a random acts of kindness organization out there that will sort of give you tips. They've got a website. It's kind of helpful. Um, they'll give you sort of tips and tricks on how to perform random acts of kindness and do sort of random nice things for other people. Uh, I suppose it's possible to read the Gospels and, um, and think of Jesus' life as a series of random acts of kindness. To read through the Gospels and go, well now over here He's preaching and over there He's healing and here He's doing a little of both and here it's a little different and there it's... It would be tempting, I think, in, in many ways to read the Gospels and... and and think of the life and ministry of Jesus as a collection of random acts of kindness. The truth is, nothing could be further from that state. The truth is, further, it couldn't be further away from that. I mean, it's, C.S. Lewis actually describes the miracles of Jesus as steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest. And occupation. C.S. Lewis sees the miracles of Jesus on earth as not random acts of kindness, but but, but actually a, a military strategy. As a, a, a general, a war general, sort of laying out, here's how we're going to invade this world. And here's what we're going to do to conquer and invade and occupy these people. And it's this strategic invasion and intention upon complete conquest and occupation that our passage confirms for us this morning. It's Jesus' practice, Luke tells us in verse 16, to go to the synagogue. Uh, Jesus Himself was made sure He was in the gathered, uh, the gathered corporate worship of God's people on the Sabbath day. And he was invited to preach, it appears. Not, a, not an uncommon uh, event in those days to take an esteemed uh, visitor and hand him the scroll and say, here you read and you preach. And it just so happens that Luke, I hope at least, only records part of Jesus' sermon. Otherwise, you have recorded in Luke 4 the shortest sermon ever preached. It's one simple sentence in verse 21 when Jesus says, Today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has read from Isaiah 61. He's read. He took the scroll. He unrolled it. He found the passage in Isaiah 61, read that and then rolled the scroll back up, handed it to the, the attendant, and his one-sentence sermon says right there in front of everyone, I'm the very person this prophet was talking about. I'm the very one that Isaiah foresaw. I'm the promised Messiah. I'm the one who's been sent to come and do the very things that Isaiah 
prophesies in chapter 61. Jesus has just announced to everyone there in the synagogue, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King, I'm the one that's been promised throughout the Old Testament. And yet, we get this glimpse, primarily in verses 18 and 19, of this strategic invasion intent upon complete conquest and occupation. What's his mission? Notice, first of all, in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. Part of what Jesus is claiming here is that I'm the one that's been anointed for this office, for this function, to carry out this invasion and conquest. The Messiah is going to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. This act of anointing was normally done by oil. You would pour it on the head of a king or a priest, and it would set them apart to that office for that purpose. And yet, what you notice here is Jesus isn't anointed by oil, but He's anointed by the Spirit. Isaiah envisions a day when the Messiah is not just anointed by oil. Oil washes off. It's temporary. It's there for the the purpose of of setting you apart for the office, but the next time you bathe, it's going to be gone. And yet you get this in the Gospel of Luke. Luke sets out for us exactly... He sort of leads us up to this point. He prepares us. Look back at verse 22 of chapter 3. We have the the baptism of Jesus in in Luke chapter 3. It's a passage you're familiar with. And then we have in verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Part of the picture of Luke 3 isn't that Jesus is being baptized for His sins. He's not being watched. He's being anointed for the office of priest of carrying out the priestly kingly duties on behalf of his people and at the end of that baptism the holy spirit comes down on him and anoints him for that office but notice what happens as we keep reading keep following along in luke's gospel look at verse one of chapter four Luke writes, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. So he walks away from John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit hasn't left him. And so in in verse 1 of chapter 4, he's filled with the Spirit and the Spirit is the one that leads him out into the wilderness. And there he's tempted by the devil. But be encouraged. Because did you... Notice what we read in verse 14. After being tempted by Satan, Jesus comes back and you would think, you might be tempted, you might even be worried. I mean, is the Spirit going to leave Him now? I mean, of all times, after forty, after that time in the desert of, of going hungry and dealing with Satan, I mean, is the Spirit gone? But notice what verse 14 says. 
Jesus returned to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit. Luke is actually preparing us as he's writing his Gospel. As he writes chapter 3 in the first half of chapter 4, he's actually preparing you to hear Isaiah 61. So the first line Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, the Messiah is going to be anointed by the Spirit. And you should go, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. I've heard this three times already in the last chapter and a half. I think Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Because Jesus is anointed by the Spirit back in chapter 3, verse 22. And the Spirit remains on Him, with Him, before and after His temptation, and even as He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth. But what was Jesus anointed to do? What is the Messiah anointed to accomplish? Well, look at the list in verses 18 and 19. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, the year of the Lord's favor. Now, it might be easy. It might be tempting at some level. I mean, we sing Amazing Grace, right? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Now I see. The reality is I've never actually been physically blind. Sometimes I wonder if I'm not going there. The more I rely on these stupid things. But I've never actually been physically blind. Why do I sing Amazing Grace? Well, I've been spiritually blind. I've lived in spiritual darkness, separated from God because of sin, because of my sin. It would be easy to read Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 as merely spiritual. Spiritual blindness. Spiritual poverty. Because, I mean, Jesus says that in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So we, would, we are tempted to read this as purely spiritual. But that's not what Isaiah had in mind. It's not what Luke has in mind. And it's not what Jesus has in mind. Because keep following the way Luke writes his gospel in chapters 4 and 5. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. He went uh, down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were... Uh, astonished at his teaching, for his uh, his word possessed authority. In the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. He cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And if you keep reading, Jesus heals this demon-possessed man. Look down in verse 38. He arose, left the synagogue, went to Simon Peter's house. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. He rebuked the fever and it left her. She gets up and starts serving them. So now he's 
freed someone from demon possession. He's healed the sick. Uh, down in verse 40, when the sun is setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them, wouldn't allow them to speak. We could go on into chapter 5 and see where Jesus heals lepers and, and paralytics. And, and over and over again, Luke is pointing us back now to Isaiah 61. In chapters 3 and the first half of 4, he's saying, look, Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit to carry this out. So when we find out that that's the Messiah from Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, 14, uh, 16, then, then we're prepared. That's Jesus. Jesus has been anointed to deliver all of these people from the physical effects of the fall. And how do we read chapters 4 and 5? Jesus delivering people from the physical effects of the fall. Blindness, sickness, skin disease, broken bones and muscles that don't work. Jesus is healing All kinds of physical effects. In other words, as soon as Jesus preaches the sermon, today Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke then goes on to show us how it's fulfilled in their hearing. Who are the poor? Who are the captives? Who are those who are blind? Who are those who are oppressed? It's those who are actually physically poor who actually physically oppressed, who actually uh, are, are uh, captive, who um, are in need and blind, physical. They're dealing with the physical effects of life in a fallen, broken world. You do realize these people were the, the unlovely, unlovable types. These were the people that most people avoided at all costs. The lepers are walking around ringing a bell, having to zigzag down the street to make sure they didn't accidentally bump into somebody. They're ringing the bell, announcing their leprosy. And if the people coming at them don't move, then they've got to move to the other side of the street to avoid uh, uh, making them sick in case they're contagious. The paralytics, the blind, the lame, they're all dependent on other people to help them. These are the people that were the unlovely, unlovable types. For that matter, in those days, orphans and widows had really no expectation of of anyone to protect and care for them because they had no husband, they had no son, and, and so they're left fending for themselves unless someone showed them kindness that would have been out of the ordinary. Jesus comes to meet the physical needs of the outcasts. To solve, to... To alleviate the physical effects of the fall among those who would have been the unlovely, unlovable types. That, by the way, is how he proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. 
Not just by announcing the Gospel, but by giving evidence of the power of the Gospel to save in the way He heals. He, he gives evidence to the fact that, yes, I'm the Messiah, and, and the Gospel does save you. How do I know? Because Jesus proves He has power and authority over all the effects of life in a fallen world. He proves that He is not just another Isaiah by doing that which Isaiah could never have done. He shows Himself to be the Messiah by proving His power and authority to accomplish the Gospel because He has power and authority over everything that sin can throw at Him. In fact, turn to Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, John the Baptist is facing death. He expects, he's been arrested, he expects to, that he's about to die. And um, he wants to die for the truth. Kind of makes sense, right? Before these people behead me, Jesus, uh, or before these people behead me here, disciples, will you do me a favor? Will you run to Jesus and will you just make sure? Because if I can, if I need to renounce this, I will. If he's not really the one. And notice verse 18. The disciples of John, uh, Luke 7, 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you asking, uh, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, uh, he bestowed sight. And he answered, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' message back to John is, are you really the Messiah? Here's your evidence. Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled. The Messiah has come to peel back the darkness, to to deal with all the effects of brokenness that sin has introduced into the world. Proof that Jesus is the Messiah is found not even what He says. Even Jesus says, it's not the Gospel that I preach that is the evidence that John needs. It's the healing, the miracles that I perform. So for Jesus, these miracles are part of a global invasion intent upon complete conquest. They're not random acts of kindness from a peer to a peer. They're acts of mercy from the King of Kings to His subjects. Evidence that the Kingdom of God is actually here. It's actually present on earth. And that Jesus can accomplish forgiveness for our sins because He's already shown Himself to be more powerful than the effects of sin. But I want you to notice something about Luke 4. About the passage from 
Isaiah 61 that uh, Jesus reads. He reads again Isaiah 61 and he stops to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. If you were to go back and look at Isaiah 61, Jesus stops in the middle of a verse, in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of a thought. He actually stops part way. He didn't finish the sentence. He stops at, proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord, rolls up the scroll and gives it back. What's coming next? Well, what's next is, the very next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why would Jesus stop there? Why would He stop between the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God? What the Old Testament prophets anticipated in one event is actually spread out in two. Jesus came the first time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to inaugurate His kingdom. But is His kingdom fully and finally and completely here as we anticipate it to be one day? No. Does He still have enemies here on earth? Yes. Has the day of judgment come? No, that's, that's His second coming. That's the day of vengeance. Jesus stops between those two thoughts because He lives between those two events. He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But He's not yet come to proclaim the day of His vengeance. He's inaugurated the kingdom But He hasn't brought it in its fullness, in its totality, in its completion. The new earth, the new creation will be sinless. The new earth, the new creation will have no blindness to heal, will have no captives, will have no poor, will have no oppressed, will have no lame, will have no leprosy, will have no death, will have no disease, will have no broken bones. Those things won't exist. Those are effects of the fall. And in the new creation, the effects of the fall are totally and completely eradicated. Be encouraged. Be comforted by that hope and by that promise. Lewis was right. Jesus is intent on complete conquest and occupation. And His miracles performed while on earth were part of that invasion, were strategic, uh, strategically a part of that invasion. And that invasion means that the kingdom has come, but we still anticipate the day when the effects of the fall are no more. Let me make three applications from this passage. The first, to ask the obvious question, what in the world does this have to do with our series on church officers? Here's the connection. Diaconal ministry deals with the physical effects of a broken world. The office of elder has been established to represent the word, the prophet, and and, uh, shepherding ministry of Christ. The office of deacon has been created to carry out this, to represent this aspect of Jesus' healing ministry, to deal with the effects of brokenness in this world 
as best we can, recognizing we can't make it go away like Jesus could. The office of deacon is intended to reflect the the healing ministry of Jesus. That's why we have the office at all. To deal with the physical effects of life in a broken world. A second application, it's sort of connected to that. We understand uh, this, this role of ministering to the unlovely, to the outcast, to the broken, to the hurting, uh, to the outsiders, to the periphery, to those uh, dealing with, with the physical ramifications of, of the fall. And yet, uh, one of the uh, jobs, one of the tasks we give to deacons has to do with care for physical property. So when the day comes that we have a building and are no longer meeting in rented space, uh, then that will the care for that facility falls to the deacons. And in some ways, people think, well, that's just a that's really just an office to serve as the elders' lackeys, right? The things that the elders don't want to do, we let the deacons do, and let them sort of take care of that. The reality is in Revelation twenty-one. John gets a glimpse of the new creation. And that new creation isn't just a garden like Eden. It's actually the new Jerusalem. It's a city with buildings and dwellings. And and we get to reflect a longing for the new creation even in the way we care for the physical plant, the physical facility of our church, of our congregation. It anticipates the new heavens and the new earth. It anticipates the standard question. I've picked on the youth group on Wednesday nights for this a couple of times. I've done it here a couple of times. If you ask the question, what did Jesus come to do? Inevitably, the first answer is to save me from my sin. That's only half true. That answer is too small. He came to make His blessings known as far as the curse is found. I did battle with yards and lawn equipment yesterday. It bout broke me. I mean, weed eaters and blowers and mowers and gas and screwdrivers. and I mean, it was all out. Jesus came to fix that. To fix all of creation. Everything affected by the fall. Everything that breaks. Everything that comes apart. The weeds in our garden are there. Genesis 3 tells us because sin is real. We want our elders and our deacons to reflect the work of Christ and the longing for the day when there will be no more sin as much as we possibly can. The office of deacon actually helps to reflect this part of Jesus' invasion of the created order. A third application of this passage is this. Why does Jesus heal Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation. 
Maybe you're here this morning and, and you would say, if someone said, you know, are you a Christian? Are you a believer? You answer, would answer honestly, no, I'm not. Or maybe I think I possibly could be. I'm not really sure. You're thinking to yourself, I just, I mean, Jesus, I, I really don't know if I can trust Him. I can't see Him. I really don't know if He's, I don't think He's worth my trust, to be honest with you. Why does Jesus heal? Eyes are blind because sin is real. The lame, I mean, our, our bodies break down because sin is real. Sickness and disease exist because sin is real. Lazarus was, was dead in a tomb because sin is real. And if Jesus can defeat the effects of sin, He can conquer and defeat the sin in your life. He can conquer and defeat Satan himself, which he did on the cross. In other words, this passage encourages you trust in Jesus because he's already proven he has power over the effects of sin. And if you are an enemy of God, it's a consequence of sin. That too has been, can be, has been defeated by Christ on the cross. In other words, Jesus heals He gives physical evidence of His power over fallenness to prove to you that He can deliver you at the last day over all the spiritual consequences of your own sin. May God grow us in the likeness of Christ and in our vision for His kingdom established on this earth. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your work here on earth that You would defeat blindness, that You would defeat sickness and disease, that You could simply, by the Word of Your power, call Lazarus out of a tomb, having been dead for three days. That You can defeat every effect of a fallen, broken world. Every consequence that sin exists. Every evidence of sin, You have proven Your power and authority. And so, Father, we pray that You'd be at work in us. Those here this morning who have never trusted in Christ, would You defeat that enmity in them even now? And by Your grace, bring them to saving faith in Christ. Encourage and equip us that we can trust You. That we can rely on You. That you, you have defeated Satan. That Your kingdom has been inaugurated on this earth. And Father, we pray that You'd give us the grace to bring that kingdom to bear wherever we can. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I will respond.